Our gospel lesson this morning is found in Luke chapter 10. We are following the parables of Jesus through the gospel of Luke. We are reading from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, with all of your strength and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we gather around your word this morning, we ask for the illumination of your spirit for understanding all that you have revealed. Give us minds that inquire into the meaning of all that our Lord Jesus says about loving you and loving our neighbor. Speak, Lord, for your servants listen. Amen. Every teacher, whether they believe it or not, has made the statement. We've all heard the phrase, in fact, there's no such thing as a dumb question. And it's true, there really isn't such thing as a dumb question. If you don't know, you need to ask. If there is a lack of clarity, then please clarify. Seek after that clarity by asking a question. Questions are good things. If you are ignorant and need help, then please pursue it. We all learn that general rule in life that you can sit in ignorance and not know and pretend that you do, but it is perhaps better to always go ahead and ask your question. Questions clarify. Questions bring understanding. But just because every question is not a dumb question, it doesn't mean that all questions are equal. Some questions do seek to clarify, and some questions come from another place. They don't seek after clarity. In Luke 10, a lawyer, and a lawyer in Jesus' day was a trained theologian. They were one who was an expert in the law of God. Ask Jesus a question. And he asks one of the most important questions that a human being can ask. What must I do to inherit eternal life? 
It is a good question. It is the question that confronts us all. It is the question that everyone who lives needs to ask. What does it look like for me to participate in the life of God's new world is what he's asking. It is the question of human existence. But we also are told in the passage that the question doesn't come seeking clarity. Rather, the question comes from another place. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. You see, it is not a dumb question, but it is a deceptive question. He's attempting to trap Jesus in his words. And you see, some people ask questions about the Christian faith because they think the Christian faith might be true. And so they're seeking to clarify and they're wanting to understand. And then some people ask questions about the Christian faith because they fear it might be true. It challenges them deeply, and so they need to dismiss it. And this is what the lawyer is attempting to do. He wants to dismiss Jesus, make a fool of him, and send him back with his bags to Nazareth so that he can be done and gone. He wants to make him stumble. And nonetheless, certainly Jesus could intuit the man's heart and understand what was going on. He engages this fearful, cocky lawyer, and he begins to answer his questions. He engages him in a conversation. And along the conversation, Jesus is going to address three main questions. And in verse 25, Jesus begins with the question, what is my duty to God? Remember that the man has just asked him, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And for many of us, when we hear these words, we think that the man is asking for a list of things that he is to do in order to earn his way into heaven. That is not what this first century Jewish lawyer was exactly asking. He understood that the inheritance that God would give in the world to come was a gift. This is just simply Jewish theology in the first century, that they knew that it was grace that would give anything from God. He understood the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments don't begin with a command, it begins with a statement. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He knew that there was grace, and that grace initiates, it comes from God. And then he understands that there is then gratitude. And what he is asking Jesus is what shape is my gratitude to take? And so Jesus agrees with the man. The man quotes the two great summations of the law. We are to love the Lord our God and we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. By doing those two things, we don't earn our way into heaven, but rather we reflect our faith and our trust in the God who has reconciled us and who has redeemed us. And for Jesus, the answer to the question, what is my duty to God, is simple. We answer God's grace with gratitude. This is what Jesus is affirming about the lawyer's own answer. He says, go and do this. We answer grace with gratitude. We respond by assuming our responsibilities, by taking up those responsibilities. It is the grace of God that creates. It is the grace of God that enables. It is the grace of God that sustains our obedience to His initiating grace and mercy with us. 
And this is how Jesus is answering the man's first question, how he engages him. And that this gratitude is going to find two expressions primarily. There is a vertical expression or a love for God. And there is a horizontal expression, a love for neighbor, those around us. And in the Bible, these two are never torn apart. In fact, you don't have a genuine vertical in the Bible unless it intersects the horizontal. And you don't have a genuine horizontal unless it intersects the vertical. That these two always belong together. And yet for us, it is always a real struggle. When I was first planting a church in 2008 in Washington, D.C., I encountered that struggle. As a church planter, you tend to attract for the first year of your existence those who are looking to your church to be the perfect church. It's a good bit of pressure. And the biggest trick of that first year is figuring out what that individual's desire for the perfect church is. How do they define that? What is their ideal? And so during that first year of 2008, I was attempting to understand different camps that were forming in our young congregation and what their ideals were. And roughly speaking, there were two camps that I encountered. And one of the camps were those who were very much focused on the worship service, that they wanted a particular experience. And so they were nailing me down about whether we were going to have projection screens and how often we were going to do communion and what kinds of hymns were we going to sing. Were we going to use the blue book or the red book? And were we going to sing psalms? And were we going to read from what version of the Bible? They were very concerned about what this vertical relationship with God looked like. And I shared many of their concerns. It was important to talk about. But there was pretty much an exclusive focus. They said, no, if we do these things right, everything else will take care of itself. And then there was another camp. Washington, D.C. is a city with many nonprofit groups who are working there, and they're often working for, in cases of the underprivileged, those who are marginalized. And so there was a strong group of people in our young core group who were very interested in the horizontal aspect of what it looks like to express the love of God in the world. And they each had their cause. One person worked for the pistachio lobby. One person worked for the UN. One person worked somewhere else. I mean, it was all over the place, different causes. And the thing about these causes were, if you weren't on board with it, then you obviously didn't love God. And there was an extreme focus for some in wanting the church to be a horizontal, loving place. And it was important. You could agree with it. But friends, the difficulty for all of us is we tend to list one way or the other, and the Bible refuses to list. It refuses to lean one way or the other, that the vertical and the horizontal belong together and they always must intersect. Jesus says it's the first commandment, and then the second is like it. He almost doesn't want to use one and two because he knows that they're always complementary. Love of God and love love of neighbor belong together. And this is how Jesus defines the duty of the Christian. That the one who is to participate in the life of the world to come is reconciled by God's grace, but then answers that grace with the expression of gratitude found in love of God and love of neighbor. It is this that then leads to the lawyer's second question. You find this in verse 29. It says, but he, 
desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? This was a common question in the world of the first century. It was a question that the lawyer's profession debated. The great houses of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and their theological theological schools asked these questions and debated them. There was a common answer, and the common answer was given about who your neighbor was, is that your neighbor, it began with those faithful Jews who were around you. And then some of the schools would expand that out just a bit broader and say, no, it's anyone who shares your Jewish heritage. And then there was a debate about whether the proselytes, those were the people from the nations who had converted to Judaism. And there was a lot of uncertainty about whether the proselytes counted as your neighbor. One thing there was no uncertainty about was whether the Gentiles counted as your neighbor. They were the dogs. You didn't have to love them. They were not your neighbor. And so the lawyer asked Jesus a question that he knew the Jewish answer to. And what he was seeking was for Jesus to define the limits of the responsibility. Who is my neighbor? Who must I serve? How much must I do? What am I on the hook for? That's the orientation of his piety. He wanted to define who he had to care for because obviously he knew that that command could get out of control really quickly. That's a ridiculous command. We need to put some limits on it. To answer this, Jesus tells a story. He begins in verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Ancient Israel was the crossroads of many different religions and peoples. In terms of ethnicity, it was very difficult to tell one people group from the other. They all looked very similar. But there were a few things that defined the people groups and their different religious expressions. The two things in particular that you could use to define those groups were dress and speech. There were dialects and there were languages tied in with these religious ethnic groups. And then there was also a particular form of dress that your religious preference would wear. This is how identity was basically branded in the ancient Near Eastern world. And so this man is walking from Jerusalem down to Jericho. This was a descent of 2,500 feet from Jerusalem down to 700 feet below sea level, 17 miles. It was a notoriously difficult trek, and it was extremely dangerous. There were known to be many robbers, brigands, outlaws on the road who would take advantage of you. You notice how Jesus tells the story of the man who fell into the hands of the robbers, the man who was taken advantage of on the road, that the two things that could identify him, his dress and his dialect, were stripped away from him. Look what Jesus says, the robbers stripped him and beat him, departed, leaving him half dead. He could not speak. He was half dead. He was stripped bare. There he is lying naked in, the, in what would be the modern gutter on the side of the road. And friends, this is Jesus' first approach 
to the question, who is my neighbor? That he refuses to play the game that was being played in the first century. He refuses to define your neighbor by those who agree with you. He refuses to define your neighbor by those who share the same ethnic background. He refuses to define your neighbor by those who are in your church or in your community or in your same social class. He blows up all of those distinctions. And the way that Jesus defines the neighbor here is the one who has all forms of identity removed, but he's a human being in the ditch in need. This is how Jesus defines the neighbor that is simply a human being in need. He demolishes our definitions. And just where we seek to limit the scope of our responsibility, Jesus removes those limits. And He says that the neighbor are those that we encounter in life who are in real need. Those in the ditch. And as He defines the neighbor... Jesus, though, doesn't stop there. This would be simply to give the lawyer a clarified understanding of the scope of God's command. And he knew that that wouldn't fix the issues that this lawyer faced. It wouldn't address his real issue. Simply by redefining the neighbor, Jesus does not address the man's heart. In other words, Jesus is going to go a step further with this lawyer. And he does so by asking the man another question. He asks the question, verse 36. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The three that he was referring to, he's referring to the priest and to the Levite and to the Samaritan. And Jesus has turned the question here at this point, and he has importantly done so, where he's not asking, who is your neighbor? But he's saying, which one of these men, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, was a neighbor? In other words, Jesus has shifted from the external world of definition to the internal world of character. Rather than seeking to establish the limits of our responsibility, Jesus seeks to form a character of compassion in us. And this is where he is now taking the lawyer, and it's where he is taking us. That Jesus doesn't want us simply to have neat, circumcised categories about who we have to care for and who we don't. But rather, Jesus wants the law of God to take up residence in our heart where we know what it is to be compassionate to those in need. And there's two defining marks, though, of this compassion as it plays itself out in the parable of the Good Samaritan. The first sign of this compassion is that it is personally inconvenient. You notice the priest as he passes by. In verse 31, it says, Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Many people ask, why exactly did the priest pass by on the other side? It's important to understand the context and the background that the priest was leaving Jerusalem, obviously. He was going down the road with the man who was beaten. 
He follows behind him. He's leaving Jerusalem from his service in the temple. He was a priest. And priests had elaborate rituals that they had to follow when they were defiled. And there were five essential things that could defile a priest in the Old Testament law. And one of them was contact with a dead corpse. In order to purify yourself, it took at least a week, and it was very expensive. It involved the sacrifice of a red heifer. The priest would have to return to Jerusalem, delay seeing his family. It was going to be extraordinarily inconvenient for him to go near that man. He was to stay four cubits away, is what the oral law prescribed. And so do you ask, why did the priest not engage with the man dead in the ditch, who he, was, who he would have presumed was dead? It would have been extraordinarily inconvenient for him. He was a prisoner of his own theological system in the game that he was playing. The Levite had a similar response. He also passed by on the other side of the road. His excuses were not as strong. But he didn't want to get tied up in this mess either. It was inconvenient. But then we find in verse 33, but a Samaritan as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Rather than passing by on the other side of the road, the Samaritan sees the man. The one who was half dead and stripped naked. One who had no identity markers on his body. And he has compassion on him. He then binds up the man's wounds. He pours oil and wine on them. He takes them to the innkeeper and pays he gives two denarii, which for lodging standards in the ancient world, that would have been several weeks of upkeep. And he says, if there's any more expense, I'll cover that as well. It's an extraordinary generosity that he shows to this man who he didn't know. He didn't know if he was his kin or not. He didn't know if he was his rivalry or his enemy, whether he was friend or foe. He didn't seem much concerned. He responded in compassion. It is ironic that Jesus uses a Samaritan. They were considered heretics by modern-day Jews, and Jesus would have agreed that their beliefs were off. He uses a controversial figure to make his point. And friends, for us today, when it comes to this Samaritan act, where he sees the man in the ditch and responds in compassion, this will take on different shapes and forms. In their book, When Helping Hurts, there's helpful categories given to us about how to think about showing mercy. That there is the category of relief. When you find someone in the ditch who has simply been taken advantage of, and there they are in need of mercy, that you extend yourself to them and give relief. That there is a real human being and a real need there in the ditch. And at times it may look like development. And that is that you enter into a relationship with somebody and you teach them how not to get into the ditch. Maybe you don't want to travel after dark on the road from Jerusalem down to Jericho or something like that. And then there are times where the church will enter into what we call justice. That is where the church enters into types of relationships that help establish justice along the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, where the outlaws and the robbers are addressed. 
that the church will do all of these, relief, development, and justice, as we seek to have compassion in a broken and hurting world. And this is all incredibly inconvenient. It costs us something. We have to step into the needs. It means that our world can't quite remain the same. That we don't just do this if we have the margin financially or the margin of our time. But rather, it's when we see the need and God has the need in front of us. Those are the needs that He has a calling upon our life to address. Personally inconvenient. The second piece of this compassion, though, is that it's also service to God. This is where Jesus refuses to allow the vertical and the horizontal to be torn apart. He simply won't allow it. Jesus mentions that the Samaritan takes oil and wine and pours it upon the wounds of the man who was half dead. For the original audience, this would not have been missed because oil and wine were the libations poured out by the priest in the temple offerings. They were part of the sacrificial service of the temple. And Jesus' critique was that he desired mercy and not sacrifice. That the Jews of his day were lost in their orthodox rituals and they lost the true meaning and the gratitude, uh, the expression of gratitude that belonged to their faith. And here, the one pouring out the oil and the wine, it was on no formal altar but is upon the body of a fellow human being that was broken and was in need of compassion. And what Jesus is indicating is that the true offering, the true sacrifice that had taken place was in the service of this Samaritan to this man who he did not know. And friends, when we give ourselves to those who we don't know, who are without name, without qualification, but simply in response of compassion and care, it is a sacrificial offering to God in which we offer our life's work, our vocation, our calling, all that we are to Him. And that's the second mark of compassion is that we pour out ourselves for others generously giving ourselves to them. As God actively extends grace to us, we are to participate in that grace and be shaped by it. To then inhabit and live in God's world doing the same. You ask the question though, how do we become compassionate people like that? The world is filled with people who protest and say that they have needs, and we've all been used. We've been taken advantage of. After a while being taken advantage of, it's very hard to become compassionate. Sometimes we've been hurt by people who have needs, and we don't desire to respond to them. Being compassionate can be very difficult and rigorous work. But yet God claims our compassion. He says that we are to love our neighbor. And so we have to allow God to work in all of that messiness and we have to figure out what does it look like to give relief? What does it look like to participate in development? What does it look like to do justice in the world? To come in as compassionate and merciful and righteous people. What does that exactly look like? And how does that turn take place in our hearts. 
It's a very similar story to the story of the Good Samaritan as found in the Old Testament. The echo is often missed, but you can turn to the book of Ezekiel in chapter 16. God speaks about His relationship with Israel here. And He compares Israel to a baby who is born. And the baby is not even separated from the uterus of its mother and thrown out into a field, presumably to die. Verse 5, No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. When I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. And this is God's remarkable grace and mercy to His people that cast out in the open field, left to die. This was all of our condition and state. And God finds us wallowing in our own mess. And He says, live. He speaks a word of grace and compassion. When there was no one else to be compassionate, no one else who could help us, no one else who could save us, God intervenes. And He gives the command, live. And when He gives the command, it's an enlivening word and it brings us into relationship with Him. It draws us out of our sins and out of our sure death. Friends, this is where we find the source and the fountain, the foundation of compassion. It is in the compassion, the love, and the mercy of God that if we want to be compassionate people, if we want to know what it is to work that out horizontally, that it has to be experienced deeply and profoundly on the vertical level. And so this involves no trite knowledge of sin. It doesn't just simply involve theological knowledge. It involves an experience of the love of the living God for a broken sinner. And what it means to fall in front of Him and to confess our sins and to know that our only hope is in His reconciling and redeeming work in Jesus through His death and resurrection. And when we truly meet that vertical compassion, it will begin to change things on the horizontal level. You want to know how to be like the Samaritan? Where you become sacrificial? Where you become willing to inconvenience yourself? You have to experience the great love of God revealed in Jesus. It's the only way. The command is too stiff otherwise to sustain. Only the grace and the love of God in Jesus can continue to motivate and compel and establish your love for the world around you. And so let's ask our God to do that for us. Let's pray. Father, we were cast out in the field. We were helpless. There was no one to have compassion on us and yet you did so. You poured out grace and mercy and your love. You redeemed us and you've commanded us to live. And our Lord Jesus Christ, we are alive before you. And now as we participate in this grace, we ask God that you would make us gracious. As we know your mercy, may we become merciful. As we experience your compassion, may we become compassionate. May we be willing to inconvenience ourselves. And may we offer a sacrifice of praise and service of others. There are many great needs around us in our city. Would you 
call us to address them, that as we personally encounter real needs of real human beings in the ditch of life, give us wisdom about how to address those needs. Lead and guide us for your sake and for your glory. Amen.